1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was... Ontario's patient ombudsman has issued a call for complaints from family members, residents and staff at long-term care homes amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Craig Thompson and his staff want to hear about situations where the safety of long-term care home residents and staff may be in significant jeopardy. This is something of a departure for the four-year-old office, which was first headed up by the current health minister, Christine Elliott. Libby Snymer spoke with lawyers Jane Medes and Melissa Miller about this, as well as the patient ombudsman himself, Craig Thompson.
2: What we've heard through our complaints that we did, um, we have been getting uh, since March 2nd, when we began to really track COVID-19, is there there was an increase in complaints um, around COVID-19 for within um, all the three sectors that we have oversight, um, but in particularly within long-term care, we were seeing a dis- disproportionately larger number of complaints related to COVID-19 in that sector. So that's very worrisome to us um, when you see, a, you see a jump in complaints in, in one particular sector. Um, but also so the nature of some of those complaints were concerning to us because uh, we were hearing from um, you know residents families and staff about severe staffing shortages so um, and that would you know not allow uh, a home to sort of meet the basic needs of, of residents um, care needs but we're also hearing about inadequate infection prevention and control measures um, and also just generally poor communications from the home with families and residents and during a time when you can 't visit your loved one in a long term care this is that's really very disturbing um, because uh, you really feel quite uh, you know it's very confusing for for families uh, and very challenging for them when they can't actually visit their fam- their loved one
3: What is your role in this what what will you be adding to the conversation
2: what we're wanting to, to make sure is that anybody um, who's got uh, a situation that they're concerned about where the health and safety of a resident is in, is in jeopardy or, or a home is, 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 is struggling, that they know that, uh, obviously, they, they sh- hopefully they're able to complain to that home, but if they can't or they're, or they're um, not satisfied with the response they're getting from that home, that they have us as an option to come to and, and to speak to our staff. And we will, um, based on the severity of the, of the complaint, um, either reach out immediately to the home um, or to other agencies like the Ministry of Health or um, the Public Health Unit, um, and at a minimum, provide information and the support that um, patients and families uh, are so, or, or residents and families are so, are desperate for in these sort of very confusing times.
3: Uh, so, right now, let's bring in Jane Medes, who is a staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the elderly, which is a community legal clinic for low-income seniors. Well,
4: I mean, anything that can bring a light to the problems in long-term care, I think, is is very important. Um, I think that, you know, if people are aware of all the different avenues that are available to them, um, and if the patient ombudsman has a, a, is able to contact homes or different organizations, which may be swamped right now because of COVID, and get through, I think that that will be very helpful if they can help resolve some of the issues that are going on.
3: Okay, let's bring in Melissa Miller, who is a partner at Howie Sachs & Henry in the area of elder law finally we are all getting to see the shortcomings and the problems that exist there you know uh in other ways do you think that that avenue will really help uh add to our knowledge
5: and add to solving the problem it's my opinion that well first of all we can't use COVID 19 as a scapegoat for what's happening right now in these homes these issues have long predated what we're seeing and what's happening in these homes is a direct result of the systemic issues that have been long-standing. And I'm hoping that uh, the silver lining in all of this is that we'll finally see some positive, real change after all this is said and done. Is the
3: problem that there's not enough control? I mean, these are for-profit enterprises, and some of them
5: make a lot of profit. I got to tell you, um, the, ba- the majority of my cases are against privately run homes not the government-run facilities. I don't think it's only a question that we need more taxpayer dollars uh, to fix this problem. I think it's uh, there needs to be oversight. We need to have more stringent regulations. It's a combination of things, but it's also how these funds are being used and the transparency, or lack thereof, of what's actually going on behind closed doors. Jane. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that, you know, part of the,
4: there definitely is a, a profit um, issue here um, with between private companies and then management companies as well. Uh, sometimes homes have both. It's it's money issues, but it's also ensuring that the rules are followed. And I think that there has been an absolute failure of the government to do that. Um, and so we need to make sure that if you're going to have rules, they're going to have to comply with them.
1: Jane Medas with the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, Melissa Miller, partner Howie Sachs and Henry, and Ontario's patient ombudsman Craig Thompson. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The drunk driver who killed four members of the Neville Lake family, including three children, was granted day parole this past Tuesday. Marco Muzzo had served four years of a 10-year sentence when the decision was made by members of the parole board. It's a decision that's prompted outrage, but maybe not for good reason. Libby was joined on Wednesday by criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind and Andrew Murray, CEO of MAD Canada.
6: I think you have to separate this into two types of discussions. Uh, one, looking at the system and how it works and, you know, the impact on families and how they feel. So from a systematic point of view, not surprised, Uh was a little surprised last year when they denied him uh day uh, parole. Gabe, you know, he didn't have the respect he should have for alcohol. Obviously, he's worked on that. And, you know, the corrections staff recommended at the parole hearing that he has fulfilled his obligations and should be subject to gay parole. And there's no way any family would accept that. I think uh, Jennifer Neville-Lake sums it up so appropriately. He only served, you know, one year for each of the fatalities in their family. And it's just society and from a victim perspective, unacceptable. Uh,
3: What would be
6: acceptable from your point of view? The way the system works. Um, is just when people are associated with them, when somebody gets 10 years, they expect them to serve 10 years. You know, they expect, you know, consecutive sentences. So if you kill four people, there should be four different sentences and they all run together and the person should serve that time. So from the people that are involved in the criminal justice system, from a victim perspective, that's what they'd like to see. But, that's not on the radar that's not kind of things that our parliamentarians are willing to consider and so victims of crime continue to be frustrated at the system and and i want to be clear the the punishment of these offenders isn't going to stop the crime but it's what victims and society has seen and expects as fair punishment
3: Let's bring in defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. I would assume that you're not surprised by this.
7: No, I think really what's happened here, Libya, is that the Canadian public has been drastically misinformed and thinks that the criminal justice system works in a way it doesn't, so that they think that the Marco Muzzo release yesterday was shocking. Or another narrative that I see all over anti-social media are people thinking that his wealth and the fact that his daddy's a billionaire had something to do With the way he's treated. And in fact, the opposite is true. He is being treated more harshly because of his family wealth. And I just think that's a narrative that through no fault of anybody, Libby, this is not a finger pointing. The Canadian public is just completely misinformed as to how our system works or doesn't work how parole works or doesn't work but there was absolutely in short nothing shocking about him getting out yesterday there was nothing shocking about him not doing more than uh just over a third of his sentence and quite frankly if he didn't screw up at his parole hearing a year ago so badly his screw up he actually should have been out a year and a half earlier than yesterday.
3: Do you think there was any impact of, of the pandemic? Because we know that jails are very dangerous congregate places. Do you think that had any impact at all?
7: So that's a great question, Libby. And as much as this will be a boring answer, and I'm not known for those, the answer is that COVID-19 had absolutely nothing, and I emphasize this, nothing to do with yesterday's hearing or Marco Mutso's situation. As I said, If Marco Muzzo didn't screw up at his parole hearing in November 2018 by saying all the wrong things and sort of um, avoiding the truth of certain things, he would have been out in November 2018. So while the virus certainly is an issue in all sorts of stories that nobody's reporting on, i.e. the number of violent people being released every day day from jail cells all across this country, and nobody's paying attention to it. It had nothing to do with Marco Muzzo's release yesterday. And there is this idea that somebody like Marco Muzzo should do Shawshank Redemption, prison break like hard time. There is a very significant difference about the difference the way the correction system will treat a guy who takes a gun, loads it, goes through the Eaton Center, shoots up the Eaton Center, doesn't care who's in the Eaton Center, wants to get revenge on his fellow gang members, that person is treated as a very different criminal than somebody like Marco Muzzo, who may one day drink and drive, and there but for the grace of God go the devil, may actually hit a young child. The idea that a Marco Muzzo should serve, because he's low risk, He's not a threat to do it again. The idea that there's no difference in how the jails treat a guy who shoots up the Eaton Center versus a Marco Muzzo, I'm sorry, I just can't go down that road of thinking.
1: Criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind and Andrew Murray, CEO of Mad Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. While so many Canadians are taking a big financial hit because of COVID 19, Business is brisk for fraudsters, and they are nimble. As soon as we're on to their latest scam, they come up with something else. And this latest one is timely. It is a fraudulent offer of loans. Libby snymer was joined on Thursday by Jeff Thompson senior RCMP intelligence analyst with the Canadian anti-fraud Center
8: well loan scams are uh, are one of the oldest scams out there and right now what we're seeing is uh, you know deceptive websites popping up or fraudulent websites popping up looking like they're a lending company and offering people loans and you might see advertising uh, on the internet or you might receive emails about how to get a loan essentially directing you to the these fraudulent websites and they 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 are pretty legitimate looking you know they're they're well done they'll take you through the uh, you know a typical loan process where you're going to have to fill out an application provide all your personal information uh, and then submit it and then it gets you know reviewed and then you know once you're approved uh, they're going to ask you for some upfront fees you know whether it's you know uh, for insurance on the loan is the is the typical thing we see but uh, you know at the end of the day you're not required to pay money up front in order to get loans
3: How can we tell if it's fraudulent?
8: It's really difficult to, at this time. Like I said, the website's really well done, but essentially if you're being asked for money up front in order to receive a, a personal loan, that is your, that is the big red flag. Um, so what you want to do is you really want to do your due diligence on any company or you know if you're looking for a loan, really research uh, the company you're, you're getting a loan from the loan company. Uh, these things have to be registered provincially and, and federally. Uh, a good place to start you know, might be the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada who you can reach out to. To, to start asking them questions, um, you know, because there, there is a, a, a Trust and Loan Companies Act in Canada, um, so, so they, they can provide information on that and where to go to, to find out if a company is indeed a, a legitimate lending institution.
3: Do most of them pretend to be a, an institution that we wouldn't have heard of, or do, do some of them just pretend to be big banks?
8: Most of them pretend to be uh, an institution you haven't heard of, um, you know, so they're coming up with, uh, you know, uh, Jeff's Lending Institution, for instance, you know. Um, so they're coming up with their own names, but they're creating really uh, official-looking websites that, you know, look like legitimate lending institutions and, uh, and, and again, offering you loans. And, and the typical offers, you know, good credit, bad credit, apply now type thing.
3: That's a red flag, too, if they say that it doesn't matter what your credit's like.
8: Well, I mean, you know, with lending uh, and getting loans, you're obviously going to go through a credit check and and there's risk ratios involved. Uh, And so, um, you know, if anybody's, you know, if you've gone to a legitimate institution, uh, if you've gone to uh, companies in, in your city and you were unable to get a loan, what makes it? different for, for this company that they're able to approve you for a loan is sort of the question you got to ask yourself. So
6: um,
8: again, you really want to do your due diligence. You know, if, if you've tried to get a loan, you weren't able to get a loan, and all of a sudden somebody's offering you this loan and you're approved, why is that? So that, that's the question you want to ask yourself. And again, really do your due diligence and, and look these things up. Do you
3: have any idea, Jeff, how many people have been affected by this loan scam or, or anything like that?
8: Yes. So part of us pushing out our, our fraud warning recently is, you know, we're seeing an increase, um, you know, month over month, essentially, you know, jumping from 64 reports in January up to 85 and uh, by the end of March uh, and still seeing them come in, in April. So, so we know with the current uh, pandemic and, and the current situation um, that, you know, people may be going through some financial hardship uh, while there is, you know, the sort of benefit or different relief programs out there um you know maybe not everybody applies uh or, or is covered by these things so we know that people might may be seeking personal loans or business loans and we want to make sure that the canadians know that you know that, that this is a prime scam that's um You know, the the current situation is ripe for these scams, and we want to make sure people are, you know, if you're you're in financial hardship and you're looking for loans, that you're really doing your due diligence, that you're not paying money up front to get that loan um, and really protecting yourself.
3: Anything else you'd like to leave us with, Jeff?
8: Recognize, reject, report. You know, recognize the fraudsters, again, are using every means possible to, to solicit scams. are coming up with new scams every day, pretty much. Uh, you know, Internet, email, text messaging, uh, social networking sites are all uh, avenues that they use to, to promote their scams. Uh, reject, you know, don't provide personal information. Don't click on links. Uh, you know, don't pay any money under urgent or uh, high-pressure situations. Really do your due diligence. Uh, stop. And think about everything, right? You know, uh, talk to family members and friends, uh, research sellers and, and websites, and then report if, if you've identified a fraud or been a victim of fraud. Uh, it's really important to report to local police and to the Anti-Fraud Center so we know what's happening.
1: Jeff Thompson, senior RCMP intelligence analyst with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. An experimental drug is being hailed as a treatment for COVID-19 and could soon become the standard of care. It's been endorsed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top American infectious diseases expert. On Wednesday, Dr. Fauci released the results from a trial of remdesivir, which involved more than 1,000 severely ill COVID-19 patients in 75 hospitals around the world. It showed that patients put on the drug recovered 30% faster than similar patients who were given a placebo, cutting the recovery time from a median of 15 days to 11. Remdesivir is an experimental drug that was tried unsuccessfully to treat Ebola, though it did show some success with other coronaviruses, SARS and MERS. So what does this mean for us here in Canada? Libby asked this of pharmacist John Papasturgio, who's also assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Pharmacy.
9: You know, it's still a little bit early. I mean, I think we potentially have our first treatment, because uh, uh, right now a standard of care is really supportive care. We don't, we don't really have any drugs available to, to treat COVID, um, but i think we still have to be realistic the paper hasn't been peer reviewed yet it's uh, early days we have some preliminary data uh there's you know there was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago as well out of china where they stopped recruiting patients just because they didn't uh, have enough patients that were presenting with covid as as the pandemic was ending there uh, the results weren't as as good out of China, the very, very preliminary results. So I think we have to take this with a grain of salt, but it is very, very promising. And uh, let's see
3: where it goes. Fauci revealed that, he, that he, he told us about this because he was afraid of a leak and people taking advantage of the leak, given that 75 hospitals around the world were involved. But Are we putting the cart before the horse here? I mean, this is, as you said, all very fast. Usually there is a very drawn-out process. But is is this what's needed when we're in the midst of a pandemic?
9: Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, these are very special circumstances. And I think uh, what we're seeing here for the the medication is probably what we're going to see with a vaccine or vaccine candidate potentially. So we're going to, you know, we are going to, I think... uh, uh, Rush some of the approvals. That being said, I think we still have to rely on evidence. I, like, we saw what happened with hydroxychloroquine. I mean, uh, there was some positive anecdotal kind of information floating around from France, and all of a sudden it was being touted as a as a cure, right?
3: Yeah, but uh, there's so a big difference between Donald Trump doing it and Anthony course.
9: Fauci doing oh, it. Oh, absolutely, of course, of course. I mean, I think here we we have preliminary results from a, a randomized trial. It's a pretty big trial. There was a thousand patients. Uh, the end point, uh, obviously, is time to recovery, which is an important end point. So we have, yeah, we're at a point where uh we could potentially have a drug that works. I think we're going to start seeing it in the U.S. first. But there's a couple of things we should realize. We still don't have the duration of therapy worked out. The dosing is something uh, that's being talked about. There was a study that also came out yesterday where they said potentially a 10-day course is, or a 5-day course is as good as a 10-day course. So there's all these details that are still kind of being worked out. Uh, The other thing many people, because I get a lot of questions about this, patients don't realize this is an IV medication, right? So it's not an oral medication. So it's not something you're going to be getting prescribed out of your family doctor's office. This is something that's going to be available if you get admitted into hospital, and will have to be administered intravenously.
3: Let me ask you about supply, because, of course, if it it does get a fast-track approval, they're going to have to manufacture it. Right now, it's being released in the United States on a compassionate basis. Uh, And I've seen, you know, people are obviously excited and reacting to it, but basically saying, you know, we even if it's all good, we're probably not really going to get any here in
5: Canada.
9: Oh, you're absolutely right. I think with that, the company announced yesterday that they're on track to have 1.5 million doses available by the end of May. So uh, what that means with respect to treatment courses, we're not really sure. If you have to treat patients for five days, obviously you'll be able to treat twice as many patients uh, uh, than if we have to do 10 days. But that's still going to be a limited uh, supply of medication. So when this will be available in Canada or if it will be uh, fast-tracked by Health Canada is still something we don't know yet. I mean, most of the information right now is coming out of the U.S., and obviously there's such a a much bigger market than we are. Uh, So, yeah, I don't think this is something you're going to see, uh, you know, in, in weeks here in Canada. That being said, there were some Canadian sites that were contributing to the study, right? So patients in Canada that were in the study, have received the drug here as well.
3: What would you like to leave us with?
9: Just remember, we're going into a good weekend, everyone. Maintain that social distancing. Uh, Don't uh, start throwing barbecue parties. Uh, Only go out if you really need to. And uh, we'll all get through this together. And I hope to see you soon, Libby, in person.
1: John Papasturgio, pharmacist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Pharmacy. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. After going through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the week. Lori in Erie called about the decision to give killer drunk driver Marco Muzzo day parole.
5: I'm quite shocked. That
4: Marco Muzo got out. I shouldn't be shocked because this happens again and again. I think that being put in jail needs to be more of a deterrent. I think sitting around in jail getting three square meals, as some other lady mentioned, um, probably better than nursing homes get, is not much of a deterrent. I think a lot of criminals do criminal activity because they don't have much to lose but in this case he did have and it was obviously a bad decision that he made but i still don't think that he's served enough punishment for what pain he caused the family
0: and now fight back's knockout call of the week In fact,
1: there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Annette in Etobicoke, who at 85 is doing her best to
4: stay well at home. I've been in my home since 1956. So I try and manage by myself. Um, My daughters all live far away. Um, I have someone bring in my groceries which was very hard to get started because I couldn't find anybody nobody would answer the phones. So it was hard. Um, I haven't driven my car in six weeks. So I was lucky enough also to get my insurance canceled for till September.
1: That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback@zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Paddy, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer.